Well, it is a joy to be with you again. Uh, I think the past, probably about three times, Justin's invited me to come preach for him. I, I had some sort of other obligation, and it didn't work out, so uh, it's a joy to be able to finally join you again today. Uh, as always, want to bring greetings from Jefferson Park Baptist Church in Charlottesville. Uh, we pray for you and are very thankful for your fellowship in the gospel. Uh, now, as some of you may remember, uh, I have been doing a, a series here through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, it has been a while, but uh, we are picking up today in that series in chapter 6. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 this morning. Uh, and 1 Corinthians is a unique book uh, because Paul addresses so many different topics. Uh, he addresses marriage and singleness, spiritual gifts, head coverings, the resurrection, disunity, uh, church discipline, food sacrifice to idols. And then here today, he addresses the issue of lawsuits within the church. Uh, apparently, some of the Corinthians were having conflicts with one another and actually taking each other to court, suing each other in public courts. Uh, Paul mentions defrauding in, this, uh, in these verses, so it sounds like this is probably over financial type things. Uh, probably some of the wealthier members in the church uh, were suing one another over some alleged fraud between them. Uh, and, and Paul's outraged by this. Uh, he, he is convinced that it is totally inappropriate uh, for two Christians, especially members of the same church, to be taking their conflict before uh, a, a public court. Uh, he sees this as uh, very wrong. Um, and so he, he gives a number of reasons why, and then he gives them a very strong warning at the end of this section saying, do not be deceived, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, so he is deeply concerned by what is taking place here. And, and as you and I consider this text this morning, uh, of course, first of all, it does teach us that we should not sue another Christian. Um, so that there's... <clears throat> you're considering suing another member of this church, I, I think this text is going to tell you to strongly reconsider that. Uh, but, but hopefully, you know, that's not the situation you're in. Um, and yet, I still think this text has great application for us because it challenges us to probe our hearts, uh, to ask questions like, what's your relationship with money like? You know, do, do you care more about money or the gospel? And, and the witness that this church and your life is being to the watching world. Uh, and what about when there's conflict between you and another Christian, another member of this church? How will you go about resolving that conflict? You know, what, what will you do with that? Are, 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 you, are you someone who's able to reconcile and live peaceably with all men? Uh, or are you more like these Corinthians that are resorting to lawsuits to try to get their way? in the midst of conflict with one another. And when there is conflict, who do you look to to bring resolution? You know, do, do we have more confidence in you know, the, the court system out there or our brothers and sisters, the, the saints here in the church? And then finally, when you look at your life as a whole, uh, what difference has the gospel made? You know, is there the fruit of grace and truth, and righteousness, and love that's just flowing forth in your life? Or 
are there things like fraud and greed or unrighteousness that's, that's coming out as we see here in the lives of the Corinthians? Uh, as Paul puts it here, have we been truly washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God? And if so, are we living consistent with that? So with that in mind, let's now read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray as we prepare to meditate on these words. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the privilege we have now to hear it. We thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit to grant illumination, to help us to understand it, and to give us hearts to respond to it and to obey it. Father, please help me to preach your word faithfully. Please work by the power of your spirit in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I think this text breaks down into four main sections. Uh, the, the first three focus on three different reasons why we should not sue one another. And then the final section is a warning that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, so let's dive into the first section, which is the first reason why we shouldn't sue one another, and it's found in verses 1 through 3. So point number one, don't sue one another because you're qualified to judge for yourselves. Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to, the, go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Uh, now the first thing to notice here is that Paul is talking about conflict between two Christians. This isn't talking about you know, a Christian suing a non-Christian. This, this is talking about Christian and Christian. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, he's talking within the context of the local church. And then he says, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? 
That is, how dare you take this before the unrighteous judges in the Roman courts instead of before the saints, instead of before your fellow Christians, the church. Now, when he labels the Roman courts the unrighteous, uh, that's striking because that, that was a very advanced court system in its day. Uh, it was probably better than most other court systems out there. Uh, so we shouldn't think, well, they weren't supposed to sue one another in the Roman court system because that was a bad court system. But you know, now in America, well, we're under a new court system, so this must not apply to us. No, I, I think what Paul is doing here is characterizing any non-Christian judge, any sort of system of courts out in the world apart from the community of faith, apart from Christians, as the unrighteous. And that's because anyone who's not a Christian is someone who's in rebellion against God. It's someone who is not submitted to God's authority, who is not submitted to God's word. Someone who's living by a very different standard of right and wrong. You know, so, so, so he's saying, why would you turn to a rebel against the king to administer justice for you? Why would you take this matter before the unrighteous? Uh, for, for two Christians to come before a, a pagan or an atheist judge and asking him to resolve their conflict would be like two medical doctors disagreeing over what drug to prescribe, and then they turn to a witch doctor to settle their disagreement. You know, what kind of sense would that make? You know, Paul says, how dare you go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, note as well, um, Paul's not saying here that if another Christian wrongs you, well, you have no recourse, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, he's saying, well, don't take them to law out in the courts, but he's offering an alternative. Take it before the saints, the church. You know, he's expecting that there would be some within the church who would be able to handle this. And I think that implies that for you and me, there, there may be times when we would be and should be asked to help mediate a conflict. You know, and if we have the attitude of, oh, I don't want to be involved in that, I, I'm not qualified for that, well, we're doing a disservice to our brothers and sisters because to whom else are they supposed to turn? If, if we're the saints, we, we have a responsibility here. And, and if you question your qualification, thinking, well, who am I to judge a matter like this? Well, notice what Paul says next in verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Yeah, Paul says one day you and I will judge the world itself. We'll judge angels. And, and he says this like it's something we're supposed to know. Uh, so maybe you already knew that or, or maybe you're just finding out, but, but it's true. You know, elsewhere the Bible says that we will reign with Christ. Just one example in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, it says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And one of the functions of reigning is judging, administering, overseeing. One day, you and I will be in positions of judgment 
over the world and even over angels. And remember, when God originally created the world, he gave mankind dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living thing on the face of the earth. And even though that dominion was substantially lost through our fall into sin, it's been reclaimed through Christ. He is now reigning over all and we will reign with him in the new creation. And so Paul's argument is, look, if that's your future job, if that's your destiny, if God has deemed you to be qualified to reign with Christ and judge angels, how much more are you qualified to judge lesser matters? Like some financial disagreement between two members of the church. These are trivial. These are matters of this life. I mean, can you imagine a Supreme Court justice having, you know, two young children in his family and they're having some sort of squabble and so he calls up the, the guidance counselor to come resolve it. I mean, wouldn't that seem ridiculous? You'd think if, if you're the Supreme Court justice, you should be qualified to handle this. Well, Paul's point here is that when there's conflict in the church, we, the saints, should be qualified to handle it. We, we should be able to administer justice, to to the best of our ability in this life, say, this is what God's Word says. This is what should be done about this. So don't sue one another. Take it to the saints. Now, before we move on, I, I want to address a couple points. First, what does this mean concerning something like a sexual abuse allegation? You know, Is Paul saying here that churches should try to handle that in-house? You know, that authority shouldn't be informed. Well, I think that's a big mistake. Uh, as, as I've already mentioned, as I think will become clear as we keep reading, Paul's not talking about criminal cases here. He's talking about civil suits. Uh, he's not talking about disobeying the government by, you know, not cooperating or not reporting something that's legally required. He's talking about voluntarily choosing to sue another member in the church. Uh, elsewhere, the New Testament clearly affirms the legitimacy of non-Christian governing authorities. Uh, it commands us to submit to them, to pay our taxes. It tells us that God has given them the power of the sword. Uh, so we should absolutely cooperate with them. Uh, we, we should involve them when they're supposed to be involved. And, and if a Christian commits a crime, even if he or she is repentant, well, there still may be legal consequences that they need to pay. Um, but this has in view something more like, you know, Brother Bill here was renting a room and he didn't pay me his rent money and there's some sort of squabble over that. Like, that should not be taken to a public court. But that leads to a second question. Well, what if Br Brother Bill won't listen to the church? You know, we, we take this before the elders or the saints and you know, that maybe they agree with you. They, yeah, this person has wronged you. Hey, Brother Bill, you need to make this right, but he stubbornly refuses. Well, what happens? Because, you know, the, the church, it has the power of the keys, but it doesn't have the power of the sword. The, the church cannot coerce. The, the, the church can't force him to do something like that. What the church can do is remove him from the church. The, the church can say this person who may profess to be a Christian should no longer be 
regarded as such. Uh, li- listen, for example, to what Jesus, how Jesus explains in Matthew 18. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So theoretically, you know, if this is a significant enough thing and this person won't listen to you and they won't listen to the saints, well, ultimately, Jesus says, the saints say, you're no longer one of us. And now it's no longer conflict between two members of the church. It's a conflict between you and someone who's regarded as a non-Christian. And that doesn't mean we should be quick to want to sue people, uh, but I think it at least means there, there's a possibility, if it's a significant enough thing, that a Christian can legitimately sue someone who's not a Christian. Um, it's no longer the, the kind of situation Paul's talking about right here. So, hopefully that brings some clarity to the bigger picture, but again, the overarching point to begin is Paul says, don't sue one another, because you're qualified to, to judge this for yourselves. You're far more qualified than the unrighteous judges that you're turning to instead. Well, that brings us to a second reason why we shouldn't sue one another. So point number two, don't sue one another because it undermines your witness to the world. Look look at verses 4 through 6. Paul continues, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Now, on one level, Paul's continuing his point. You know, take this to the church, not a Roman court, because surely there's someone wise enough in the church to handle this. But notice how he brings a new element into this. The shame of taking this to pagan courts. I say this to your shame. Can you imagine doing this before unbelievers? You know, Paul has just reminded the Corinthians that one day they will judge the world. And now through these lawsuits, they're asking the world to come and judge them. They're acting as if we who have the word of God are less able to administer justice than pagan judges without it. Further, they're acting as if you know, we who are called to proclaim the eternal gospel of reconciliation. I mean, we're the ones who are supposed to be telling the world how they can be reconciled to God, how all people through Christ can be reconciled to one another. And yet here you have the Corinthians asking the world to come and resolve their conflicts because they can't figure out how to be reconciled to one another. Why would anyone want to listen to them? Why would anyone want to listen to the Corinthians proclaiming the gospel if this is the witness they're being? I mean, would would you take your car to a shop if your neighbor is a mechanic there and every other week he's at your house asking you to help him figure out how to fix his car? You know, w- w- would you go to a hospital 
If, if the doctors there are just perpetually sick and then they come to you asking for medical advice, well, then why should anyone come to a church to learn about reconciliation if the church doesn't even have one person wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers and instead turns to those with no standing in the church to be its judges? It's shameful. It's a bad witness. When I was a kid, I remember watching a show called Judge Judy. Uh, there weren't a lot of TV channels to choose from at my grandparents' house, so I settled on that one. And one of the things I remember about that show is that it was amazing how often the plaintiff and the defendant were both members of the same family. You know, here you had family members in court suing one another. And, and, and when family members are suing one another, regardless of the outcome, regardless of who wins, who loses, you never come away thinking, oh, that must be a really noble, upstanding family. I mean, it, it just cries dysfunction all over. And you see, we are the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, we are people who are supposed to love one another the way Christ loved us. Who are, who are supposed to be willing to lay down our very lives, giving ourselves to one another. How shameful it is if we are so determined to take from one another that we would take that before a public court. Instead of being a, a bright witness to the world, we, we've become more of a a spectacle for entertainment like the Judge Judy shows. You know, Paul, Paul is, is, is trying to help them see what will the world think? Isn't the gospel more important? Isn't your witness more important than this money that you're squabbling over? And friends, for us, I mean, when you have a grievance against another, and let's be honest, sooner or later, all of us will have a grievance against somebody else. We may be the family of God, but we're still sinners in this life. We're going to sin against each other. We're going to wrong one another. There's going to be things that we do where you are going to feel wronged or defrauded by someone. But when you have that grievance, we need to ask ourselves the question, I mean, do I care more about money or the glory of God? Do, do I care more about my rights or the witness of this church? Do I care more about personal vindication or seeing lost souls saved? You see, in everything we do, we are being a witness for Christ. The only question is, what kind of witness are we being? Will the watching world see our relationships, the way that we are handling conflict, the way that we treat one another and be impressed by the power of the gospel, by, by, by what kind of king Christ is, or will they see us as hypocrites? Will they, they view us as, well, they don't have reconciliation figured out any better than we do. So don't sue one another because you're qualified to judge for yourselves. And number two, don't sue one another 
because it harms our witness. But a third reason. Don't sue one another because it violates the spirit of the gospel. Don't sue one another because it violates the spirit of the gospel. Look look at verses 7 and 8. Paul continues, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now, up to this point, Paul's been emphasizing that uh, we should seek justice through the church rather than through the public courts. But now he further suggests that perhaps there are times we shouldn't be so determined to seek justice for ourselves at all. He says, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Uh, And on one level, this is a continuation of what he was just saying. Uh, Surely it's better to accept fraud than tarnish the witness of the church. That's why he says to have lawsuits at all is already a defeat for you. You know, even if you win the lawsuit, you've You've really lost. It's a lose-lose situation when you're going to bring shame on the church through it. But implicitly, I think there's something more behind this. Why is it that we as Christians should be okay with suffering wrong? I mean, why should we be able to just let some things go? Why, why, why should justice not be the, the always driving impetus in our lives. Well, we'll listen afresh to the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 5. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you to take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Why would Jesus tell us that that the citizens of his kingdom, that his disciples are supposed to live like that? Well, it's because that's what our king is like. Remember Christ there hanging on the cross, being mocked being spit upon, being beaten, being stripped naked, put to shame. At any moment, he could have called down legions of angels and defended himself. But he laid down his rights. He accepted wrong. He died so that we might live. And now through him, we have become the recipients of unimaginable mercy and grace. We've we've been rescued from hell and given eternal Uh, eternal life in Christ. So if Christ has suffered for us like that, shouldn't we be willing to suffer wrong for Him? For for His glory? For His honor? And should we really be so adamant and zealous for recompense and repayment when the fact is all of us owe a debt that we can't pay? Should we insist on an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth against those who wrong us when all of us are beggars before God for His mercy and grace? And should we be so quick to to point the finger at others, you've wronged me, you've defrauded me. And the reality is, 
we have often done that to others. Instead of asking, how can I make them pay me back? Maybe we need to ask, how might I have wronged or even defrauded them? Lord, show me my sin. Where have I contributed to this conflict? You see, this suing of one another, it, it really goes against the whole tenor of the gospel. And the gospel teaches us to be gracious, to be humble, to love, to, to accept the wrongs of others against us while finding the wrong in ourselves. And those are the things that, that Paul hears about what's, the, the, what's going on in the Corinthian church, and he sees they aren't doing that. They've, they've drifted from letting the gospel guide their lives. They, they've, they've gotten so far from you know, not accepting wrong and extending forgiveness that they're actually perpetrating wrong against one another. Look at verse 8. He says, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. How far they've drifted. And friends, what what a reminder for us to, to ask ourselves, is our life characterized by the mercy and grace of the gospel? Are we living consistent with that? Do, do we reflect that? I remember last Thursday I was you know, talk, talking with uh, some boys uh, in a boys Bible study just about the, the kind of joy and gratitude that, that should fill our life if, if we really know Christ. And, and I gave the illustration of, you know, imagine that somebody wins the lottery. You know, that morning they find out, I just won $10 million dollars. You know, and then that afternoon, somebody, you know, steps on their shoe and scuffs their new shoes. Like, what would you think if this person is just complaining and angry and, and sullen because their shoes got scuffed? I mean, you would think this is, you won the lot, you won $10 million this morning. Is, is that really not overriding your mood? Like, something is out of whack here. That's crazy. Well, friends, what about us? I mean, is the reality of what Christ has done for us, the grace and the mercy we've received, is that so characterizing our thoughts and our life that when we're wronged, when there's conflict in the church, our instinct isn't to jump to, how can I get what's mine and I'm going to use a lawsuit to get it if I have to. But there's a willingness to say, you know what, if I just need to let this go, I can do that. Because I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You know, when, when my child's being disrespectful, when, when I feel slighted by that little comment that somebody made about me or to me at church. You know, when someone breaks something that belonged to me, they borrowed it and damaged it, or they swung open their car door and dented my new car. How will we respond? Will the love and the grace that Christ has shown us be reflected? Or does that just get forgotten? And do our rights and our interests take center stage? Now, I don't think this means that we should be pushovers. It doesn't mean that there's never a time to seek earthly justice. But it does mean that if there's anything that we want have characterized our lives. It would be that we ourselves would be known for integrity and righteousness in how we treat others. And that we would be known for people who extend mercy and grace to others even when they mistreat us. 
So for all the reasons we've seen so far, don't sue one another, Paul says. You're, you're qualified to judge for yourselves. Don't sue one another because it hurts your witness. Don't sue one another because it violates the spirit of the gospel. Right? Paul's being very clear. These lawsuits are inappropriate. They need to stop. Whatever grievances you have either need to be dropped and forgiven or else resolved by judges within the church. Paul's made that very clear. But he doesn't end there. Because his spiritual concern for the Corinthians goes deeper. He sees this not merely as an issue of lawsuits that need to stop, but hearts that have strayed from the gospel. In fact, Paul is so concerned for them in this. He's so concerned that if they continue down the path they're on, he fears it could reveal even possibly that they're not really saved at all. And so he ends with a very strong warning in verses 9 through 11. So point number four Don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now Paul's warning them here that the unrighteousness which produces lawsuits is an unrighteousness that will disqualify them from the kingdom of God. He says, don't be deceived. You will not go to heaven if greed swindling or theft characterizes your life right so if you provoke lawsuits against yourself by swindling people beware it may mean you're not truly saved and if you respond uh, to being swindled by suing another member of the church because greed is ruling in your heart beware it may be because you're not truly saved and paul says don't be deceived about that now now why would someone be deceived here? Well, I think two reasons primarily. First, I think we often can deceive ourselves by comparing ourselves to others. Right? So if you're a swindler or you're greedy or you're in an inappropriate sexual relationship, how often we want to respond to the twinge of conviction we feel when we realize like, okay, this is wrong by just looking for that other person whom we can deem is worse than us. You know, you can imagine the Corinthians, they think, oh, but what about the guy in chapter 5, the guy who was, you know, in the sexual relationship with his stepmother? At least I'm not in his category. Or we think, well, at least I'm not a homosexual. I'm not a murderer. You know, well, whatever it is, we, we want to put some sin in another category, and we label them as the bad people, and then we can kind of boost ourselves up as if we're a little above that, and we find comfort in that. But notice here, Paul doesn't give us that out. There's only one list. And everything in this list is lumped together under one title, unrighteousness. So whether you're sexually immoral, which which means engaging in any sort of sexual activity with someone you're not married to, or an idolater, or an adulterer, or a homosexual. And, And by the way, 
I think a better translation of this is reflected in the, the NASB, which says, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Uh, so it probably refers to the active and the passive partners in a homosexual union. Uh, therefore, unlike some who want to restrict this to something like pederasty, it's not restricted to that. Uh, this is about homosexuality in general. Uh, or if you're a thief, or greedy. And here's one that's a sin of the heart. This isn't just outward things. This, this is even in the heart. Or a drunkard, or a reviler. That, that would be someone who's verbally abusive, someone who's verbally disrespectful, or a swindler, you know, someone who cheats people and takes advantage of them. You know, Paul says if, if you're any of those, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. And that's because all of that is unrighteousness. It, it's all lumped into this one category of unrighteousness, and that's because at the end of the day, there's only one kind of unrighteousness, the unrighteousness of rejecting God's standards and replacing them with your own. And Paul's saying, don't be deceived. Sin is sin, and the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is only for those who are submitted to God as their king. Okay, so don't be deceived by comparing yourself to others. Compare yourself to God's law. But then secondly, don't be deceived by thinking, but all that doesn't really matter because we're saved by grace. Don't think that the gospel is an excuse for sin. And I think sometimes in our theological sophistication, we can you know, try to obscure that. We can try to start to think, well, but but. Because of the grace of the gospel, I, I can live this way, but it's all going to be fine. And I think Paul very clearly is telling the Corinthians, don't be deceived. Let me just cut right to the, the quick of this. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, if sexual morality or idolatry or adultery or any of these other things in this list characterize your life, you're not going to heaven. That, that's the firm, stern warning that Paul is giving the Corinthians and giving us. And we need to take that to heart. But, and this is the sweetest verse in the passage, verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so friends, the gospel means that even though we may be, even if we are unrighteous, there's hope. There is still hope. Not hope for you if you stay that way. Not hope for you if you refuse to repent. But hope for you and I to be forgiven and to be transformed. Right? He says, but you were washed. Washed through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Paul is talking about the heart being made new. He's talking about God changing our affections, changing us from within. So we become, it's like if a pig was turned into a human. And then the human tries to go back and eats pig slop. Well, it's going to make him sick. For the Christian who's been washed, he can't keep practicing sin. Because that, that sin has become sick. To his soul, he's been washed. The Christian has been sanctified. That means to be set apart 
from unrighteousness and set apart for God unto holiness, to be called out of sin and into fellowship with Christ. That we might follow Him and live as children of God. And the Christian has been justified. That means God has declared us to be righteous in His sight. Not based on any good things that we have done, but based on the righteousness of Christ counted to us. Our sin is counted to Him, paid for by Him on the cross, and His righteousness is given to us that we might be clothed in His righteousness. And friends, the good news of the Gospel is that even if your life is characterized by all of those things, all of the things in that list, that's who you are. The grace of the Gospel is sufficient. God saves every kind of sinner. Whoever repents and believes in Christ will be forgiven and saved and washed and transformed. And if that's you today, you can believe in Christ and be saved even now. Now for others of us, well, maybe we already have come to know Christ. But we've sort of lost our way. You know, like, uh, like first, Second Peter chapter 1 puts it, we, we've grown so nearsighted that we've been blind, having forgotten that we were cleansed from our former sins. You know, m- maybe like the Corinthians here. You know, they, 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 became, they came to know Christ, and, and now they're living as if they don't know Christ, and Paul is reminding them who they are. He says, but you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. You've been changed. You need to remember who you really are in Christ. I I think that may be the case for many of us, that this reminder today, what He has done for us, who we are called to be. I love the way that John Newton put it. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. And brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, we are no longer who we used to be. We have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified. By the grace of God, we are what we are. And we are being called today to live consistent with that. And so, regardless of whether you are tempted to sue anyone or not, may we be challenged to ask, what is our relationship with money like? What is our relationship when when someone wrongs us, when we feel slighted, maybe when we feel embarrassed? You know, whatever it is that that has a hold on our heart, does that control us? Do, Do we live like the unrighteous and respond the way they do? Or is our life reflecting the gospel? I'd like to close by reading from Colossians chapter 3 with a final charge to us. It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. 
May God give us grace to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you that you confront us in the ways that uh, we sin, in the ways that we live according to our flesh, according to our old selves. We thank you for the reminder of the sweetness of your grace to us in Christ, that you have transformed us, that you have made us new, that you have called us to yourself. We ask you to give us grace that that might be reflected in our lives for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.